There was a time not so long ago when local movie theaters were a central part of life in American cities and towns. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, a woman who is doing everything she can to preserve and expand one of America's most iconic movie theaters, the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, Massachusetts. Originally built as a church in 1906, it was redesigned as an Art Deco movie palace in 1933. And after suffering some hard times throughout the 1980s, it was purchased by a real estate magnate with a love for preservation and for theaters. And he leased the building to the Coolidge Corner Theater Foundation. Today, the Coolidge Corner Theater is a nonprofit, independent cinema and cultural center. And the woman you are about to meet is stewarding this much-loved landmark into a brighter future with a $12.5 million expansion. Her name is Catherine Tallman, and this is her story. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Candy. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us a little bit about this huge campaign. You're very close to your goal. We are very close to our goal, and I have to say that's particularly remarkable given that little incident called COVID that we hit in between which closed us down for 14 months and then also shifted our fundraising efforts to immediate operations and took our eye off the capital campaign a bit. During that time, though, it was fascinating because we were also pursuing permits for the building. So while I was trying to bail water on one half of the boat, on the other half, we were getting all these accolades from the town and 100% unanimous approval on every committee we went to for the expansion. So it was like a reminder that the future would be there, and people were very excited about it. So you're going to open the building at the end of June. What's it going to look like, and what will you offer? The building, in terms of look, I hope people will come and see it or look at our website because it's really extraordinary. It's a 14,000-square-foot expansion that attaches directly to the back of the current building. In fact, the former wall of the current building is now the interior wall of the new building. One of the last things we'll do with the construction is break through the new lobby into the old lobby, which will tie the two together. It's opening day. You open up the doors. What do you hope that you are turning the Coolidge Corner Theater into in 2023? Of course, it's been on the table for a long time. It was a vision. We were about to go public with the campaign when we encountered COVID instead. But now here we are. We're back on track. We've long needed more theaters. We're constantly selling out our two small theaters. We really only have two theaters. And we really wanted space for our audience to be able to congregate because right now you may have had the pleasure of standing outside in the pouring rain because we don't have any lobby space. So adding customer amenities was a big factor, a really big factor, too. In addition to then adding more films, being able to to screen different types of films, hold on to films longer. And the most exciting part to me is we will have a dedicated education and engagement center. We really believe in the power of film to prompt dialogue and to educate. And we're just totally, totally thrilled about that. Well, the theater is known as a place where up and coming filmmakers can have their movies screened. Why is that so important to the mission? of the Coolidge Theater? We have a couple of things that encourage new filmmakers, or whether they're young or old. One is open screen night. We offer that to the community once a month, and people can screen the products that they've made. 
The thing that was most exciting that we did recently is we've long had what we call a Coolidge Award, which will honor somebody of great stature like Jane Fonda, Viggo Mortensen, Werner Herzog. And those are terrific, but we really wanted to start recognizing and honoring new talent. And we'd been talking about this and the need and the desire to do it. And then we saw the film, The Inspection, with Elegance Bratton. And we said, now we have to do this Breakthrough Artist Award because he epitomizes what this award should be. So we honored him in January. And you'll continue to do that? We will. You sat on the board prior to taking on this big role. What is it about the Coolidge and theater that pulled you into this role now as the executive director and into this new chapter in your life. It's like a fairy tale movie story. I mean, it's total serendipity in so many ways, and I think it brings so many lessons with it. I moved here about 36 years ago to take a job. I moved from the Detroit area. I didn't know anyone here except the people I was about to work with. I was from the Midwest. I was pretty naive, and I was pretty surprised at how challenging it was to really get to know anybody here. I immediately got assigned to a portfolio in Phoenix, so I was gone a lot of the time. I found a place in Brookline. I was walking around, and I saw the Coolidge Corner Theater, and I was like, oh, my God. Between that and the booksmith, I said, I love this place. I can make this happen because I'd always loved film. From the time I was young, I went to the movies every Saturday, like many people did, all day afternoon, eating so much candy you could never imagine it now. Special events were going to the big theaters. Downtown Detroit had theaters similar to the Coolidge in terms of huge art deco, beautifully decorated. It was a grand event to go see Mary Poppins there, a film like that. Those were special events. So I've always loved film. When it was my turn, as we do that, when we're all teenagers or in younger people, and it's somebody's turn to pick the movie that week, I would always pick a film that no one had heard of, often foreign, and people would be like, oh, God. And then after they came out, they would say, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad we saw that. So I was interested in movies for a really long time. And there were very few places to see independent film in the Detroit area. I could go to the Detroit Art Institute, and there was one theater that showed some things. But when I found the Coolidge, I was like, oh, my goodness, there are like several films at one place. And there it was. Now, you know, roll that forward. As I said, I was traveling a lot. When I was gone and come back, I would find out that the theater was about to be torn down because it was failing. So I never really knew that was different then. There was no internet. There was no email. I mean, the people that were trying to raise money to save it were like literally standing in the park with cans and shaking and going door to door. So it was really like a groundswell effort, oh, just a absolutely. total local effort. How did you end up on the board? I moved here to work for a real estate investment company. I did that for several years. Then I moved to a financial services company. At that company, I met a colleague who told me about the Boston Club, which is a club for women executives. And I joined that. In the Detroit area, there really weren't many women that were professionals. And so all of a sudden, here were all these professionals. And I was working with someone who was doing the PR. She was the new chair of the Coolidge Board. She asked me to join the board. I was just amazed that I would have that opportunity, and I did that, and I was on the board for quite a while. One executive director left. A new person came in. She did a phenomenal job. Then it was time for her to move on, and I was asked by the board chair if I would step in on an interim basis. I had taken an early retirement package from the financial organization. 
And I said, I'd be happy to. And because I'd done that organizational assessment, everybody knew me. So then I just came in the next day and there was all that shock about the change. But at the same time, it was like, everything's going to be fine. Then I said, you know, we really have to do a national search for this position. It's really important. And the organization did. And then I got the job and it's been (laughs) 10 years and a capital campaign later and... (laughs) And you're like gum on the bottom of their shoe. You, they can't get rid of you at this point, right? <laughs> but you know what's really interesting, though, Catherine, is I've come to believe that we live our lives in chapters. And you have had so many career chapters, one very different from the next. You've been at the New England School of Acupuncture. You've been the senior vice president at State Street. You've been at AEW Capital Management. You got your start at Ernst & Ernst. You've got an accounting degree, and here you are running a foundation for, for this incredible theater. So if you can, can you take a look at that career path and tell us what you learned along the way that you have brought with you to this current role? Oh, sure. In fact, everything that I've done until I came into this job was this is the culmination of everything I've ever done because I have all the background. I have finance, I have marketing, I have sales, I have strategic planning. I did product startup, a product management, relationship management. It all was there. And the organization needed a business person at the helm. Anyone who's been in that role has been the perfect person at the right time. And I just happened to be the right person for that. And it was I wouldn't say easy, but it was very rewarding to really make an impact and to turn it into a professional business-run organization, which has been instrumental in being able to secure donations. I mean, when people are making large donations or small donations, a small donation may seem maybe very large in their perspective, and we appreciate them all the same. But somebody's investing in basically me. They're investing in the organization. They're investing in the business stability of the organization. And they want to have that trust. And so that turned out to be very instrumental. As the executive director, you came to the job with lots of skills. What's the one you've used the most? As you noted, I've had a lot of chapters. You go to a place in life where you can come at things from a lot of different angles. Maturity, for example. I'm a very different person than I was 20 or 30 years ago, and I take a lot of things in stride. The COVID situation was difficult, but I have to say I'm a very resilient person. I've had a lot of experiences. I have good perspective. You know, how bad can it be? In fact, when I was on a radio program and the person said, well, this was early in COVID, you know, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, well, maybe this is as good as it gets. And a newspaper in Japan picked that up because it was like April 2020, right? It's like we had no idea what was happening. You go with what you have. And I've really just believed and thinking about this discussion today was really helpful. I'm like, what did work? Because I don't feel like I ever consciously did anything other than bring my A game to everything I've ever done, work with great people, really smart people who have the same passion that I do, lead by example, just try to make things fun no matter how hard they are. And you make it a collective effort and somehow you get through it. Well, I always like to ask people who sit across from me, as you are doing right now, if we can go back in a little time machine, can you describe your hometown? Tell us what life was like in your house when you were growing up. I've come a really long way from where I started, and I recognize that more as I take this time in my life, this more reflective time, which we all get to, and see where I came from and who influenced me and how did I possibly get here. I grew up in a blue-collar town, 
good, hardworking people. My parents were not educated. My grandparents were not educated. I wasn't expected to go to college, even though I have a Mensa brain, which I learned later in life. And then to see that I went from there, which wasn't a bad place. I grew up with good values. I grew up with loving family and friends. But I certainly didn't grow up with any exposure to any kind of mentors or any kind of possibilities. And I look at that now and I think, here I am in Boston, Massachusetts, heading a leading cultural organization. How did that happen? I think it speaks to the fact that when you work really hard and just do what you think is the right thing and you take risks, certainly moving to Boston when I didn't know anybody was a big risk, certainly taking an early retirement package when I was doing just fine was a risk, but it was like, hey, you know, why not? I've always had this kind of philosophy of why not? It's like, if you don't like it, you can probably undo it. And if you do like it, okay, you'll learn something. You'll meet people. It'll be on your path to something else. I'm always kind of surprised at anybody who could say they had a linear approach to anything because mine has been anything but linear. When you look back, was there anybody who was a role model for you when you were growing up? Maybe a teacher along the way. My sixth grade teacher really got on me about writing. And she said, you know, you just did this over lunch. I can tell you can write a lot better than that. Go back and do it again. And I'm a very good writer. And that has been instrumental. And that's something I would tell anybody now. Get a financial background, even if it's just a few hours of understanding how to read a financial statement and learn how to communicate. Because especially as a female, early in my career, I was the only woman in the office. But when you have words in writing, when you've written reports and when people are reading them, they kind of have to get past the fact that a woman wrote it. They're just like, wow, this is really good. So she was instrumental. I would say, you know, from a less positive but worked out fine situation, my mother and my grandmother were both very limited in their opportunities because they didn't have education. They didn't have financial opportunities. They were in difficult situations. And I really looked at them, and they were both amazing women. They were both always proud and always kind and always loving. But I looked at that, and I said, I'm not depending on anybody ever. And that's how I've lived my life. Well, you are a CPA with an MBA in finance from the University of Detroit. When you were in college, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? You say you're probably the first person in your family to ever go to college, and then you've got a master's as well. I would say my father advised me to major in business, which was unheard of in 1970. And I did, and I'm really glad I did. I didn't have any other thing I really wanted to do, and it turned out to be a really great career path to follow. Then I decided to major in accounting because I got good grades, and it was one of the most difficult subjects in the college. And I knew I could get a job. My whole thing was get a job, get a job. Then I started this career in public accounting, which gave me such great exposure to different industries and different people. And it was just a fabulous background. As you were reflecting on some of your early years in the corporate world, you talked about being probably the only woman in the office. What do you wish you knew when you first got started? Is there anything that you had to learn the hard way? Oh, boy, I wish I knew how to play golf. Like, I wish I was a scratch golfer. It would have helped a lot. (laughs) So many deals are made on the golf course, right? (laughs) It's true. The good part is that I always love sports, and so I I could talk sports, because if you couldn't talk sports on Monday morning, you had nothing to say. Let me ask you a few questions that we ask everybody who sits where you are. The first one, Catherine, is when an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I don't really think much about obstacles being obstacles. 
I'm a very determined person. And all someone has to do is to say to me, you can't do this. My husband will say this, for example, in the process of a big renovation. Oh, my gosh, we can't do this. And I will say, we are going to do this. And you can either sit and watch or you can help. But we are going to do it. You know, you look for advice from people and you just decide that you're going to do it. I've been so impressed with your work ethic throughout this whole conversation. Is it learned or was it something that was taught to you by a member of your family? Did you watch someone else work hard and say, I'm going to be like that? There's no question that it was a very definite part of what was taught in my family. We were all taught, there are four children, and we would all say, we are all very responsible people. And it really wasn't in in a punitive way. It was just, if you're going to do it, give it your best shot. And if you're going to start it, finish it. And if you're going to tell somebody you're going to do something, do it. And you know, I've been surprised later in life to find out how many people don't actually think that that's just the way life should be. But it is. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice you've ever received, Catherine? And can you pass that along to our listeners? Oh, you know, best is always a relative term, but there are a couple of things that really stick with me. One is I spent some time with an executive coach several years ago, and I learned in a discussion with her that the mind needs data to process. And so when we don't know what's coming up, we will make up data so that we can think about it or we can try to solve a problem. And you can either worry about what's coming or you can wonder about what's coming. But it doesn't change anything because if you don't have the data, you're making it up anyway. So you might as well wonder what's happening instead of worrying about what's happening. I've given that advice to a lot of people and people are like, That makes sense. That helps a lot. My final question. Right now in this chapter in your life, how do you see success? How do you define it? What does it mean to you? For me, it's having the autonomy, independence, the opportunity to actually see the results of the work and time and passion. I mean, there are a lot of times that I put in a lot of time and work that we all do, but I can't say that I was thrilled about what came out of it or that anything came out of it in the corporate world, right? You could work in a big project and have it go away. I think in this case, it's like, I can see this happening. I wanted to build a business. I wanted to build a team that could take this organization into the future. I wanted to get this building built, and I wanted to have the Coolidge be what it's going to be for the next 100 years. Which is? Certainly the leading film cultural center in New England, if not nationally. I want to say thank you so much, Catherine Tallman, for being our guest this week on the story behind her success. Thank you, Candy. I enjoyed talking with you. My thanks to Catherine Tallman. She's the executive director and the CEO of the Coolidge Corner Theater Foundation. Find out about this iconic theater and the capital campaign to fund an even greater future for the Coolidge at Coolidge.org. Follow the theater at the Coolidge. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you know someone I should feature on the show, will you please let me know? Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.